0: Welcome to The Dinner Party. This is your icebreaker. Here's a really corny joke, but it made me laugh. Back in the days of King Arthur's Roundtable, there was a very large knight known as Sir Comference. He became the roundest knight from eating too much pie. I'm
1: Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party. A culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just
2: got a joke from bluesman Charlie Musselwhite. That'll help break the ice. Nice. He's got a new album out, and we'll hear more from him later. Plus, we speak with Grammy-nominated R&B artist Miguel.
1: Also coming up, Saturday Night Live vet Rachel Dratch gives us a list of lovers. We learn how to raise a boy to be a ladies' man, and a United States president answers your etiquette questions.
2: FYI, he's dead.
1: Yep. But first, as at any dinner party, we
2: start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines.
3: Parts of New England could see two feet of snow by Saturday. A big night for the Ravens as the team held on for a Super Bowl victory. Senator Marco Rubio Florida is going to give
4: the GOP response to President Obama's State of the Union address next week.
2: And now for something you haven't heard, we're joined by Sadie Stein. She's the deputy editor of the Paris Review. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I
5: thought I would talk about something I read about on Andrew Sullivan's website, The Dish, which is the Brothigan Library.
2: The Broadigan is this related to the author,
5: Richard, Richard Brodigan? Brodigan okay. it is indeed. The
2: counterculture
1: kind of 60s
2: author.
5: Icon, yeah. But uh, later in his life, he had a hard time getting published, in fact, and he was regarded as dated. Really? So mm. this is why the Brodigan Library is named in his honor, because it is a place for unpublished authors to have their work on display. You pay wow. $25, and your unpublished book... Enters the sacks, and you can
2: read these people's work. Can you actually self-publish a book for under twenty-five yeah.
1: dollars? Yeah,
5: but then you don't get to be in the Bradigan Library. But
1: is that really an exclusive club to be in? I mean, there must be you know five million unpublished tomes written every day.
5: They, you know what? They've put a limit on it. They're actually sort of maintaining the quality of the submission. Wait a so. second.
2: Is, doesn't that undercut the entire thing? What, how, what do you mean maintaining the quality?
1: Yeah. They
5: don't have unlimited room.
2: But
1: why, how do I know what to read? I mean, none of these authors are known.
5: Well, you have to look in, in one of the many categories they have there uh, in their reference system, like adventure, natural world, street life, humor love war and uh, all the rest
2: that, <laughs> there's a there's a session called all the
5: rest yes yes there is that's where <clears throat> I'm
1: going straight to that's fascinating okay. so you I, I mean if I was a publisher I'd go to this place thumbs through some stuff and maybe discover somebody is that the idea well
5: um, it's a very nice way to look at it, and it would be great <laughs> if something like that came of it. I think uh, the creator is just happy if people have a place to put their work, and uh, if a publisher ends up there and finds the next great American novel, so much the better. Isn't
2: the internet basically a library for unpublished books?
5: <laughs> Listen, Has this you're talking to it's... someone who works in the print and analog world, so you're you're barking up the wrong tree. Print will always have a place and a future.
2: All right. Sadie Stein, thanks for the small talk.
5: Sure. How on message was that? Thank you for having me.
2: <laughs> and now Now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you
1: something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a jacuzzi filled with booze. Sounds fun. It does. But it's bad for your skin. First, the history part. This week, back in 1958, (laughs) the United States
2: was bombed. And not by an enemy. Yeah. Michelle Philippi tells the story.
3: This is the story of sunken treasure that'll hopefully never have to be found. It all went down 53 years ago. The Cold War was on and bomber pilot Howard Richardson was flying a practice run. On board, a 7,600-pound H-bomb packed with explosives and uranium. Suddenly, the bomber was accidentally hit by an American jet fighter. Richardson had to make a crash landing. Except, small problem, his plane was weighed down by the bomb. And oh yeah, a crash landing could set it off. So to save his crew, Richardson ditched the bomb in the ocean near Tybee Island, Georgia. Then he brought the bomber down safely, earning himself a medal. Happy ending, right? Not quite, because the bomb was never found. The military says that's good, that it's probably safely buried beneath water and mud. They also say it didn't have the trigger that could create a nuclear explosion. But environmentalists worry the bomb could decompose, leaking uranium into the sea. Richardson told the BBC that kind of talk bugs him. See, he thought people would remember his heroism, but, quote, everything's about the nuclear weapon.
1: So that's the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. Joining me is Sabina Cushing, mixologist at the Old Pink House in Savannah, Georgia. That's just up the river from the bomb's possible watery grave. Sabina, you heard the history. What drink does that inspire you to make?
6: I've called the cocktail the Tybee Bomb for obvious reasons. All right. This is created much like a southern classic called a Ramos Fizz. It was very popular in this area, certainly during the time the bomb was let go.
1: So what's in this thing?
6: I'm using two ounces of aviation gin.
1: Of
7: course.
6: Also an egg white, about an ounce of fresh lemon juice, a half an ounce of maraschino liqueur, uh, and a splash of grenadine. And then these items are shaken together on ice and poured into a martini glass and topped with a splash of soda water.
1: All right. No garnish?
6: Yes. The garnish is a moonshine-infused maraschino cherry, which creates kind of a noxious little treat at the bottom of the glass, (laughs) the undetonated bomb i guess
1: appropriately scary actually i have to ask is the average savannah citizen actually scared about the bomb out there like do you avoid swimming in the ocean
6: Uh, no uh there are other things that keep me out of the ocean however (laughs) we do have our fair share of sharks and jellyfish
1: let's deal with the sharks before we start worrying about the bomb
6: exactly i I, a little bomb doesn't scare me
1: and brendan i don't want to question the wisdom of our nation's military Mm -hmm. But it seems to me on a training mission, maybe you don't put an actual nuke (laughs) on the plane.
2: But then again, this is when they thought, you know, steak was good for you and cigarettes were a healthy snack. That's right. It was an an age of innocence. Unhealthy
1: innocence. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, in moderation, our cocktails will do you no harm, I think. You'll find all our recipes at dinnerpartydownload.org.
2: Now, the guest list in which an interesting person lists some interesting things.
1: Our guest today is comic actress Rachel Dratch. She was a mainstay on SNL for the better part of a decade. More recently, she's published a memoir about her life after leaving 30 Rockefeller Center. Here she is to tell us about it and provide a Lavali
8: list. Hi, I'm Rachel Dratch. My latest little project is that um, I wrote a book called Girl Walks Into a Bar. It comes out in paperback this week. And in terms of my time on SNL, one of the characters that people approach me about the most-ish is um, the lovers that I did with Will Ferrell. Nothing caps off a day of skiing better than a warm Mm. fire, a cup of mulled wine, Mm. and the heat projected from my lover's loin space. Mm. (laughs) Nature hath no hotter furnace, eh, lover? Um, The lovers originated, actually, when I was in college, there was a professor there who, I didn't even have her in class, but my friend did, and once, right before winter break, she told my friend how to enjoy your winter break. She just said, yes, just relax, read a book, take a bath, eat a bonbon, spend time with your lover. So in honor of the lovers and Valentine's Day, I'm going to uh, discuss a few... Couples in movies and TV that have influenced me or have made me laugh—I guess. One of my favorite couples is Alvie Singer and Annie Hall in the movie Annie Hall. The reason I love their relationship is it's so real and funny, and you know, there's it gets nostalgic and sad. And you're like, oh, why can't these two end up together? Because look at all these fun times they had, and um, it just—it just feels really real to me the little moments they have the specifics in the movie you know when he comes over to kill the bug in her apartment yeah where's the spider the Where's bathroom? it in the bathroom mm-hmm. okay hey don't squish it and after it's dead flush it down the toilet okay and flush I mean, it a couple of times
5: darling I've been killing spiders since I was 30 okay <sighs> It's a very big spider. Yeah? Two, yeah, a lot of travel. There's two of them. Two? Yep, I didn't think it was that big, but it's a major spider. You got a broom or something with a, oh, like a, I, a snow I, shovel? it at your house. I
8: think I left it there. I'm oh, sorry. God, have this oh, what are you doing? What are you doing? Honey,
5: there's a spider in your bathroom the size of a Buick.
8: Uh, okay. Um, I also later kind of lived that moment with Will Forte. Um, who was on SNL with me. Not that we were romantically involved, but he did live uh, two buildings down from me, and um, I there was a water bug in my bathroom, and I was horrified, and I did call him up to come kill the bug for me. <laughs> so that's my Annie Hall moment. Well, my other um, couple that I thought of, which is also one of my favorite movies, is um, Tootsie, Dustin Hoffman as Tootsie, and Jessica Lange. Um, for those who don't remember Tootsie, the plot is that Dustin Hoffman dresses as a woman because he's not getting any acting jobs. And he meets Jessica Lange, and he starts falling in love with her, but he's kind of trapped because he's dressed as a woman. And I think, I think he makes a pass at her, makes a pass, that's a 70s term, but he makes a pass at her um, while he's dressed as Tootsie and kind of freaks her out you oh, wait a i I'm Dor-
5: Let me explain. No, don't. Please, don't say anything. But there's a reason. Uh, I understand the no, reason. No, no, no. That reason's not the reason. See, I'm not the person
8: you think I am. I just wait a minute now. Nobody is. Easy, Dorothy. It's me. No, it's me. No, it's me. No, it's me. No, it's me. It's- I'm just not well-adjusted enough. I mean, I'm sure I've got the same impulses. I me. obviously I did have the well, same impulses. Don't jump impulse.
5: to conclusions about that impulse. That impulse is a good impulse, Julie. If you could just see me out of these clothes, I do No, know,
8: can- no, no. no. I- Actually, it wasn't until after SNL that I could really understand. Understand the difficulties Dustin Hoffman's character had in getting an acting job, because the kind of the same thing happened to me. That's where my book starts, actually, is after SNL, not getting many acting jobs. And actually, the only calls I was getting at the time was to play lesbians. <laughs> um, it wasn't like... I mean, I know lesbians come in all varieties of hotness, but I was getting called to play, like, the manly lesbians. The fact is, I have trouble, like, glamming it up when I go into auditions. Okay, now I'm going to go into TV land and talk about the wholesome couples that I saw as a kid on um, Little House on the Prairie. You're probably too young for this. I was just trying to think of, like, couples that... Provide a false role model (laughs) when you're a kid. And um, I thought of the Ingalls. Charles and uh, what was her name? Caroline. Charles and Caroline. Because they were like living on the prairie in hard times, but they never got on each other's nerves. (laughs) They were always loving, and no one was ever like snapping. No one snapped on the prairie, you know?
5: You can go. What you just said. I know what I said. But now that I know that you'd give it up.
9: You can go. Now that you know I'd give it up, I can go. Caroline, I don't understand you.
8: I know. Time for supper. Mm-hmm. They just were always like full tilt love, you know, for each other, the family. You know what? Life isn't like that. Yes, we have modern conveniences, but we snap at each other, Mr. and Mrs. Ingalls. And you know, the love wasn't the only sort of false role model. I mean. Michael Landon's hair, I don't think he could have gotten his hair like that without a blow dryer on the prairie. I mean, in real life, he was probably using some sort of pomade.
1: The guest list from Rachel Dratch. Her memoir,
2: Girl Walks Into a Bar, is out in paperback this week. Enrico, while we were taping that segment, Rachel told a story from her own love life. She was explaining Passover to her non-Jewish boyfriend. (laughs) And he was like, So we just eat a meal and read things like a murder mystery (laughs) part. Which I guess it could be for a lamb.
1: Scary. Folks, we're going to take a break. When we return, Grammy-nominated singer Miguel breaks down his sound.
10: What? It's spelled W-A-H with an exclamation point.
1: That and more when the dinner party continues.
2: Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, blues legend Charlie
1: Musselwhite tells a high-flying tale. And later, author Betsy Priolo speaks out in defense of ladies' men. But first, it is time to meet our guest of honor.
2: Yes, and speaking of ladies' men, this week it's R&B artist Miguel. Yeah. His blend of soul, funk, hip-hop, electronic, and rock have won him an adoring fan base. He's co-written songs for Usher and Asher Roth. His debut album All I Want Is You was a sleeper hit back in 2010 and his latest album Kaleidoscope Dream has earned him 5 Grammy nominations including Best Urban Contemporary Album Best R&B Performance and Song of the Year for the track Adorn. Here's a clip. Ooh, ooh, baby. So, Miguel, I've been listening to that track a lot the past few days, and when I hear it, I feel, dare I say, sexier. <laughs> I think I move around a little sultrier. Is that how it feels to be an R&B star all the time?
10: <laughs> I don't know about um necessarily being an R&B anything, but, man, I suppose for everyone you want to feel sexy all the time, right? So if, if, if that does it a little bit for you, Cheers. Thanks.
2: So, Adorn is the breakout single on this album. It includes a lot of vocal flourishes, like there's little yelps and trills. Yeah. And what? That. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) How does that come about? Does that just happen in the studio when you feel it? Or do you practice that? Do you have it written down?
10: Yeah, it's spelled W-A-H with an exclamation exclamation point. Um, I don't know where that came from, man. Uh, It just felt right.
2: You don't do straight R&B kind of in the mode of older artists like, you know, people think of Marvin Gaye and Luther Vandross or even more contemporary artists like R. Kelly. How, right. how would you explain what makes your music different?
10: It's a little bit of of everything. You know, I think what it inspires me the most is driving guitars, like, you know, lots of distorted guitars. And and then at the same time, heavy bass on, on you know, lots of 808s and whatnot. So I, it's kind of like the most obvious elements of rock music and most obvious characteristics of hip-hop, yeah, uh, production-wise. And then I guess just kind of like my my instincts when it comes to vocal, like my vocal choices. And I think it's that, that juxtapose or those things kind of all together that make the music distinct. Do you consider yourself part of kind of a new wave? I, I
2: mean, Frank Ocean, The Weeknd, those are other artists that come to mind that are kind of breaking away from the typical commercial format, and they're blending elements of rock, elements of electronica,
10: and their lyrics are a little more personal. Do you do you feel part of that movement? And more than anything, I just feel a part of my own movement, man. I am excited to see that people are, or the general public and popular culture, are paying more attention and there's more awareness for a, a more personal R&B sensibility. And I think it's exciting that there's this awareness that R&B doesn't have to be so superficial and I think that's uh that's where we are man it's a reflection of our time and culture you know and that's what it's supposed to be
2: yeah I mean it seems like when I think of your songs and some of those other artists it's less cartoony I mean it's not just the the macho person or the broken-hearted person there's more nuance about ambivalence and and kind of sadness that's blended into the music
10: yeah man uh, and that's the cool part is like I miss is something i've I've learned and I've been learning and and it's something that I have to constantly remind myself in those moments of being vulnerable that it's my job to to amplify those vulnerabilities because in that fear there's so much truth and humanity and I think when people listen to it they can feel that even if it's not something that they could they've experienced personally.
2: Yeah, I should point out for the audience that your songs aren't only baby-making music. You also you know like "Candles in the Sun" yeah. is kind of is one of your tracks which is more philosophical. Um, And do you think you'll continue to kind of incorporate those sorts of songs into your work?
10: Absolutely. I mean, the truth is, man, you know, I don't live my life in the the bedroom just like you don't. You know what I mean? On the contrary, my life is lived... You know, 75, 80% outside of
2: the bedroom. I mean, I'm trying to live more of my life in the bedroom. So maybe you have a different. (laughs) different Who's not, brother? Who's not? (laughs) I mean, it's. it's, But no, I I hear (laughs) what you're saying. Well, look, we have two standard questions that we ask um, all the guests on our show. And the first one is what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Um, Describe your sound. So artists have mentioned this before. Is it because you work so hard to make your album that you're like, just listen to my album?
10: Yeah, because if I was in the business of describing things, I would I would be writing novels more. You know, I'd be a journalist or something, I suppose. Hmm. But I, I I love to make music, you know, and that's for auditory purposes. You know, yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't know how to. Describe my sound.
2: I think you should. Next time that happens, you should ask the person who asks you that to sing something. You know, it's kind of like, <laughs> all right, I'll, I'll do your job. Now you do my job.
10: Right, right. <laughs> On the cut. Co- yeah, exactly.
2: So, um, so our second question is, it's more of a request, and it's tell us something we don't know, and it can be about you or it can be a kind of an obscure fact about
10: the world. Something I've never shared in an interview. Um. I mean, I'm I'm really afraid sometimes, man. Really, I'm afraid of of how judgmental people can be.
2: Explain, like in your in your personal interactions, or just in critics in general.
10: No, I'm just like I know uh, better than to pay attention to certain things, but at a certain point, you can only ignore things for so long. Mm. And I'm I'm really afraid of of how vicious people can be.
2: Are you thinking of a particular incident when you say this? I mean,
10: I can think of of plenty of them. But I'll tell you, you know, having a a magnifying glass, so to speak, on you, you start to learn about human nature and and it really frightens me sometimes, you know. And I say this at my shows. I think this is why I I have to say this for myself at my shows. I really want everyone to be passionate about something because I believe deep down that passionate people make happy decisions and decisions out of love. Mm -hmm. And when it comes from that place, it just it almost begets more happiness. Mm. We need more happiness. I think it's so easy to get caught up in the repetition of life, and it makes people really bitter, and then and then and pessimistic, and and, I, and that frightens me. And that's something I I don't really I don't know why I shared that, but I think being <laughs> well, on this tour, it really made me really think
2: about it. Perhaps the highest form of passion I'm thinking is close to the that sound that you made at the beginning of the show. <laughs> right? What? what is it again? What? <laughs>
10: Wah! It feels really good, doesn't it? It does. I'm gonna do... Wah! <laughs> Mine doesn't sound as good. It's alright. But... As long as it feels good. It's alright. It's alright, man. It'll be okay. <laughs>
1: So, Brendan, now I understand why you were walking around in a smoking jacket robe all week. Exactly. It was the music. I get it. Uh, I don't think gold and purple are the best colors for you. That's me. It's
2: actually periwinkle.
1: Oh, well, that's fine. Uh, Folks, you can watch Miguel perform at the Grammys this Sunday. And while you're waiting for that to happen, you should head to our website, dinnerpartydownload.org.
2: And it's not gold, it's honey.
8: Eavesdrop.
1: Blues Hall of Famer Charlie Musselwhite plays a mean harmonica. Some say he inspired Dan Aykroyd's character in The Blues Brothers. He's performed with everyone from John Lee Hooker to Bonnie Raitt and traded stories with them. Today we overhear one.
0: Hi, this is Charlie Musselwhite. I just released a new album with Ben Harper on the Stacks label called Get Up, and it's rocking. <laughs> Here's a story that uh, my good friend, Big Joe Williams, told me about when he and Muddy Waters flew to Europe for the first time. Back in the 60s, I was living in Chicago. Some guys in Germany decided to start these tours called American Folk Blues Tours. And I was rooming with Big Joe Williams at the time, who was uh, one of the last of the itinerant old-time blues singers. He was a contemporary of Charlie Patton and Robert Johnson and He knew those guys, and he was famous for writing "Baby, Please Don't Go." That was his his hit. (laughs) Well, Joe got the job on this tour, and as it got closer and closer to time for him to go, he got more and more worried about flying over the ocean, all that water. He had never been in a plane. And uh, none of those guys had flown across the ocean before. Muddy Waters and Big Joe Williams and Sleepy John Estes and Magic Sam. And closer and closer it got to time to leave, I could tell from the way Joe talked, he was getting more and more nervous about it. You know, how high up the plane was, you know? What could go wrong, you know? And all that water, how do you survive? He was very concerned. <laughs> well, when he got back, he told me this story. He said everybody was on the plane and they were all, to one degree or another, very afraid. But they got to drinking and that lightened everything up, turned into like a party atmosphere. Everybody was visiting with each other, joking, telling stories, and many of them hadn't seen each other in years. And it was turned into a fun time and they forgot about being over the ocean. Well, then the captain came on and said, Okay, we're approaching some bad weather. Take your seats, buckle up. That put a real damper on everything. The plane started rocking and rolling and this confirmed all their suspicions. <laughs> I mean the party was over, their laughter was over, it was quiet, nobody was saying anything. And Joe said he looked up toward the front of the plane and he could see muddy. And for those people that you know are not familiar with muddy, you know, Muddy was always on top of whatever was going on. He was always in charge. And he was always like this regal figure around Chicago, always dressed real sharp, had his hair processed really cool, drove a Cadillac. You know, Muddy was happening. And Muddy had had a hit recently called Got My Mojo Working. Well, Joe, he could see Muddy looking left and looking right, and and his eyes were bugging out, and he could tell he was really nervous. And everybody was. But to kind of break the ice, Joe hollered up to Muddy, hey, Muddy. You don't happen to have your mojo working up here, do you? And Muddy whipped around and said, Shut up, old man! Don't you know we're all about to die? (laughs) They were crying, they were laughing so hard, and that allowed them to get over their fear of going across the ocean in an airplane. (laughs) I thought about asking Muddy about that, but I decided, unless he brought it up, I'd just let that dog keep sleeping. (laughs)
4: Chance won't wake on you
2: Blues legend Charlie Musselwhite His new album with Ben Harper is called Get Up And you're listening to The Dinner Party From American Public Media Where Muddy Waters always gets an exit row seat
7: I wanna love you so bad I don't know what to do
1: And now it's time for Chattering Class This is where we are schooled by an expert In some dinner party-worthy subject The subject this week is seducers. How's that for dinner party talk for Valentine's Day week? And our expert is Betsy Priolo. Her new book is called Swoon, Great Seducers and the Women Who Love Them. And Betsy, welcome.
9: Thank you so much.
1: And first of all, what interested you in this subject?
9: Well, my first book was about seductresses. And I wanted to see if men had been as maligned and misunderstood as seductresses. So I taught a course, and we focus on ladies' men, real and imaginary. Mm. And at the end, there were more questions than answers. This is a man who has never been studied before. A type of man, yeah. As a group. So I discovered, yeah, that they have just been shrouded in stereotypes and myths. Well,
1: yeah, and I mean, I was surprised that your attitude in much of the book, was is that seducers are misunderstood, they're not necessarily these devilish cads, and you actually have sympathy for at least some of them. Explain why.
9: I've read biographies, maybe hundreds of them, and interviewed about 20 ladies' men today, and they explode all the stereotypes, all that negative baggage that we have. I think sexual power itself is frightening. It's irrational. It disrupts the social order. And for that reason, we've burdened these incredibly sexy men (laughs) with an awful lot of baggage. Oh, these poor,
1: sexy men.
9: (laughs) (laughs) But these guys are basically a decent fellows, and they know what women want.
1: True. Well, let me ask you first of all, then, what, a question straight out of the title of the book. Why do women love these guys? What What do they have in common to all of them that women are attracted to?
9: Every one of these men has that sexual voltage. I don't know whether you can teach this. <laughs> That's but too bad. It's this innate chemistry that just draws women to them. The second thing is they actually love the company of women. I don't know that every man does. I think men are socialized to boycott the girls' club and (laughs) hang out with guys. But these men almost have an eighth sense about what women want. What is that? Well, first of all, romantic passion. Women are hungry for intense there's been a lot of studies that women adore a man who comes on strong, who flatters them, who vaults them to another level. And this
1: is not necessarily based on just physical attractiveness. There's a guy you mentioned at the top of the book who doesn't seem like a standard Lothario at all.
9: Right. I mean, the whole neo darwinian concept <laughs> is that the beefcake gets all the girls. Yeah. And the one with the most status and the most money, here's a fellow who has a low-paying job, is not buff, a little balding, but he has this boom-ting, I'm sorry, this (laughs) incredible charisma and grew up with a group of sisters and their friends who made him their mascot. I see. So as a young boy, he loved the company of women and felt very comfortable with them. He studied what pleased women and took up dancing. He says that turned on all the lights. Uh, (laughs) He became a very, very good dancer. So if I'm
1: taking two things from this, it's, you know, if you want your son to grow up to be a seducer, raise him around lots of strong women and teach him to dance. Well,
9: that works. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of the ladies' men throughout history like Potemkin, Catherine the Great's lover, for example, grew up with six sisters, all of whom fussed over him. And Casanova, of course, the prototype of ladies' Mm. men, was pampered by a whole slew of women as a young boy. Isn't that interesting? A grandmother who doted on him and so forth. I think, speaking of this first ladies' man, that another charm that he exercised is that he was a wonderful conversationalist. He really gives good dialogue.
1: What do you How would you characterize that, that he he uh, you know, listens very well or that he has a lot to say?
9: Well, both. I found when I was interviewing a lot of the ladies men, fifteen minutes would go by, and I'd been talking about myself. <laughs> At the same time, when I let them speak, they were eloquent they told enchanting anecdotes and above all they were very funny.
1: Well, I got I have to ask you based on that as a woman doing, you know, this research, mm-hmm. did you find yourself drawn to these guys? I mean, perhaps despite your better judgment or <laughs> while trying to keep some distance <laughs> from them?
9: Well, I've been inoculated. I, I myself am married to a ladies' man. <laughs> oh,
1: so this so, is where the, your actual interest came
9: from. Exactly. That was the inspiration of the entire book. And in fact, when I interviewed these men, I decided that I'd have my husband meet them. And it's curious. It's a secret society. They recognize each other and they like each other and they're on the same page. But it's not the same page as the majority of men today. But I do think that if most men could cop a little inspiration from ladies' men, I think we could help turn around this erotic slump that we're in right now.
1: (laughs) Seducer University, you heard it here first. Uh, Betsy Priolo, thank you so much for the uh, fascinating lesson.
9: Thank you. Get your dance on. (laughs)
1: Betsy Priolo's new book is called Swoon, Great Seducers and Why Women Love Them.
2: Enrico, I love how you asked Betsy about the best way to raise a son to be a seducer. (laughs) Not how do I get him into a good preschool, but how do I get him to be a good seducer? It's just, she made it seem like a valuable talent. It comes in handy. It seems
1: (laughs) like it. Folks, look, we're going to take a break. Coming up, a U.S. president
4: extends us an invitation. You must all come to Monticello and I will serve you an ideal meal.
2: We're just that important. Yeah. When the dinner party continues
1: welcome back to The Dinner Party the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations I'm Rico Galliano.
2: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan in a few minutes we hear a brand new tune from the band Pond and we speak to a filmmaker who learned that just because food is soulful doesn't make it healthful
7: she said are you gonna put that chicken inside that pot with that grease But first, it's time to learn some etiquette. Yes, each
1: week you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them just in time for the upcoming President's Day week is Clay Jenkinson. He is host of the amazing radio show The Thomas Jefferson Hour, during which each week he pretty much becomes Thomas Jefferson. And Clay, welcome. Oh, thank you very much. All right. And now we say goodbye to Clay and uh, welcome President Thomas Jefferson.
4: Good day to you,
1: citizens. Look at that.
2: It's it's an honor to have you with us, Mr. President. Like
1: magic. First of all, we have a question. Many of us recently watched President Obama's inauguration. We are curious what your inauguration
4: was like. Things were very different in my time. I walked to my inauguration. I didn't have a military escort. I simply strolled in plain clothes and then I gave my... First inaugural address, but I was so poor a public speaker that almost nobody heard what I said.
2: <laughs> really? <laughs> what you just couldn't project. You didn't have a, a big enough voice. I have
4: a slight speech impediment and a and a high pitched ah. voice, but I also am very shy. And ah. a gentleman doesn't speak very loudly. I'm not an orator like Patrick Henry or I John see. Adams. I see. You are a what? gentleman.
2: Well, you certainly know how to write. I wrote it
4: well. It's considered (laughs) one of the five or six best uh, inaugural addresses in American history, but I was not an orator in any sense, so I, I was actually very humble And shy on that occasion, and I mumbled, but people went out afterwards and bought printed copies of it on the street. Oh,
2: man. You know, you you obviously are one of the greatest presidents, but I hope this doesn't come across wrong, but what is up with Abraham Lincoln stealing your thunder lately? Seriously. His his movie's (laughs) up for an Oscar, Obama's always quoting him. Yeah. Is there any jealousy on your part?
4: No, Abraham Lincoln came along after my time. I was long since dead. I would have disagreed with his policy of trying to hold the union together with an army. I think if mm. any state wishes to secede at any time, it has a natural right to do so, and it's not for the government of the United States to hold Virginia, or South Carolina, or Vermont, for that matter, in the union. So basically, you didn't—you're not going to see the movie. I would—I'd be fascinated. You know, <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, in order to hold the Union together, had to suspend habeas corpus,
0: uh-huh. yeah. which is
4: one of the sacred rights. So this must have been an extraordinary. National emergency, and I, I would have been very uncomfortable with that level of executive authority. All right. Um, we've got a bunch of questions from our listeners who are just very
1: eager to pose questions to an actual president. Are you ready for some of these? Certainly. This is uh, from Christina via Facebook. Mr. President, have you any advice for Americans abroad regarding looking less like water buffalo?
4: I'm assuming that uh, (laughs) what this woman means is that Americans are overweight. I I think think that's what she's implying. Well, I do think that's a a very serious issue. I was a a kind of a health nut and essentially a vegetarian. And I made my own Ten Commandments late in life. And one of them was, no man ever regretted having eaten too little. Mm. A spare diet, Wait. mostly a vegetable diet, and if you will follow that and get exercise every day, you will never need to see a doctor.
1: The, but mm. doesn't, if memory serves, the last time you were on the show, you noted that you
4: brought back a waffle iron, I believe, from France? Like you I were. brought uh, macaroni, a uh, waffle iron, pasta-making machines. This isn't diet food. That's it's pretty carb-heavy, Mr. President. Everything can be eaten in moderation, but you must get exercise every day. I yeah. walked four or five miles a day or I uh, got um, exercise on my horses until the last few months of my life. But I, I don't think that I ever went more than a day or two without taking a long walk in the country.
1: All right. Mm. Well, that, so President Obama is sort of doing the, the his version of that as basketball. So
4: I guess you'd approve. Yeah, I, I'm not really in favor of games that involve violence and a ball, but <laughs> I take your point. <laughs> oh.
2: um, well, I just have one other note for Christina. Water buffalo is actually a pretty lean meat. So mm. maybe there you are. I think Americans... I think she was
4: using a metaphor. That's... Oh, oh, sorry. Thank you. Yeah, That's why we okay. need you here. You're a president.
2: <laughs> All right. So we have a que- this, Here's another question. It comes from Ziggis in New York City. It's about food. I recently ordered a slice of pizza, olive and mushroom. I waited around for the guy to heat it up, and when he handed it over to me, he said it was $4.50. This was at a typical New York City pizza joint in the Lower East Side. I realize prices have gone up a bit, but that seems like a lot. Thomas Jefferson... Help me.
4: Man. Perfect question <laughs> for not, Thomas.
2: I don't know if he wants you to buy him pizza or what.
4: <laughs> I think he wants me to, to assess uh, inflation in your time. Yes, <laughs> We had no pizza. Uh, that was not yet something that really anyone on Earth ate. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't buy food from a vendor in New York or Paris or anywhere else. <laughs> you know, what I think Zigas should do is grow his own tomatoes and make his own salad. Uh-huh.
1: Uh-huh. Wow, so you're the original farm-to-table president.
4: I am. I believe in, in localism. You know, at Monticello, mm-hmm. I had several types of gardens, a huge vegetable garden to feed all of the, the people there. But I also had... An experimental garden in which I tried different varieties of peas and Brussels sprouts and beans and so on. Yeah. And really the best thing in the world that you can do is to grow some of your own food and then to harvest it just before you eat it and to eat it as close to raw as you can, and wash it down with a glass or two of the best wine you can afford.
2: Well, respectfully, Mr. President, the soil in New York City isn't what it used to
4: be. (laughs) I understand that, but every human being who's listening to this can grow something of his own food. And when you do that, even if it's just a a single tomato plant, it Mm. gives you a sense of independence and it reconnects you with the soil. And when you do that, uh, your happiness and your virtue begin to climb.
1: All right, so Ziggis... All right, there uh, you go, Ziggis. Yeah, order just the, uh, the plain pizza, but grow your own olive and or mushroom. There
2: you are. All right. Uh, here's another question. It comes from someone calling him or herself Monster Truck in <laughs> Dallas. The name is disguised so as to remain anonymous. Really? If someone in your office asks if they're invited to your wedding and they really just can't be invited because they aren't that close, close enough to go to happy hour with, but not close enough to come to the wedding... How do you respond to
4: that? This is a good question for you. You're quite a diplomat. Well, first of all, the person in your office should not have made that request. I agree. Anytime you beg <laughs> anybody for a social engagement, you have lost some of your dignity and your sovereignty. <laughs> but assuming that it happens, yeah. then the thing to do for the host is to say, yes, of course, I'd love for you to come to this wedding.
2: Wow. Just because that's the polite thing to do?
4: Yeah, my whole philosophy is for harmony, you know, mm-hmm. respect Politeness, harmony, gracefulness, tolerance. Uh, humans are all too apt to fall out and to gouge each other's eyes or to, to get into duels or to say sarcastic and demeaning things. And I actually wrote a letter to my grandson saying, ideally, we're born with good humor, but most of us aren't, so we should adopt artificial good humor. Uh, and if oh. you do that in every occasion, it has a number of great consequences. First of all, it slightly shames. The rude person who started it. Mm, nice. And secondly, it models the kind of behavior you want from your society. And that huh. will create uh, harmony and friendship and respect and trust in every circle that you travel in.
2: This is why I pretend to laugh at Rico's jokes. It's
4: important to do that.
2: <laughs> Mr. President, thank you so much for visiting us again and telling your audience how to behave.
4: We wish you were here. You must all come to Monticello and I will serve you an ideal meal. That'd be great. Yes, I'll bring the pizza.
2: President Thomas Jefferson, a.k.a. Humanity Scholar Clay Jenkinson. Clay channels the president every week on his radio show, The Thomas Jefferson Hour. Yes, and
1: folks, we can't always guarantee a founding father will be here to answer your etiquette questions. But it is still your patriotic duty to send said questions to us. Pretty sure that's in the Constitution. Yes, so head over to our website, dinnerpartydownload.org, click Contact. Email us your query, and God bless America.
2: Or pick up your red, white, and blue phone and call us at our hotline, a.k.a. the phone in my cubicle. It's 213-621-3554. That's 213-621-3554.
1: And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any
2: dinner party, the food. Enrico, today we're going to talk about soul food junkies.
1: Okay, which would be people who are addicted to excellent food, I guess. <laughs> yes. Tasty food. We're
2: going to be talking about everyone in the entire world. That seems like a large topic. Yeah, to no. It, we're talk- It's a new film by documentarian Byron Hurt. All right. And it looks at soul food, both the pros and the cons of soul food. The movie's rolling out at film festivals and screenings around the country now. So this week, I met Byron at Vonda's in Newark, New Jersey. It's one of the soul food restaurants featured in his movie. Okay. And first, I asked him to define soul food for
7: me. When I think about soul food, I think about the traditional staple soul food dishes like macaroni and cheese, barbecue, chicken, fried chicken, ham hocks, collard greens, black-eyed peas, sweet potatoes, sweet potato pie, um, all of the desserts like red velvet cake, My mother makes um, great apple cobbler, peach cobbler. I grew up eating like fried pork chops. Those are some of the things that I identify as soul food.
2: And so the through line, it sounds like, I mean, that sounds like a lot of Southern foods, right?
7: Yeah, the through line is that, you know, these are foods that actually came out of West Africa, traveled over through the Middle Passage, and a lot of enslaved Africans adapted their, their culinary style to the foods that they had available to them here in the United States. And they made the best of what they had. It's almost a direct link. I mean, without that slave heritage, the, maybe the cuisine would be different. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think, I think that slaves survived by their cultural memory of, of the kind of foods they prepared and, and ate back in the motherland. And they made changes based on where they lived and what was available in their environment. In that way, soul food is very much survival food. Another
2: defining attribute of soul food is how rich it is, and this is something you talk about in your film. Why is that? Many of the traditional southern
7: soul food dishes are cooked with fatty meats like ham hocks or turkey neck, uh, fat back. Many of the dishes are high in salt. You know, they don't have to be, but you know, that's just uh, the way that the food is heavily seasoned. And so... Many people, many doctors and nutritionists suggest that it's the seasoning and it's the preparation of the food that makes soul food
2: unhealthy, not necessarily the food itself. So let's talk about that. One of the themes of the movie is the health of soul food and kind of you discovering that how you were raised eating maybe isn't the healthiest way to eat.
7: I think it truly stems from Southern hospitality and back in the day in the South where everyone used to feed each other. If Big Mama had this much food, everybody on the block was eating.
5: I mean, they don't think about high blood pressure or anything that's going to happen down the line. They think about, okay, right now. We're eating now. We're at the table. So, you know, everybody come in. Let's eat. Let's enjoy right now.
7: In our culture, especially black culture, we have a problem with eating all the wrong foods, a lot of fried foods, a lot of grease.
2: Can you talk about that moment when you realized how you cook chicken maybe it wasn't the healthiest way to cook chicken.
7: I was in a situation where I was interested in a woman who I invited over to my apartment. I was a young dude. I was fresh out of college and trying to impress her and, you know, I knew how to cook fried chicken and other soul food dishes that my mother taught me how to cook. And so she came over to my apartment, you know, I had all of this chicken that was seasoned and I had a huge pot, this big vat filled with grease. You know, and the grease was, like, popping hot. And she came over, and she came, walked over to the kitchen, and I was about to put the first piece of fried chicken in there. She looked at me, and she said, are you going to put that chicken inside that pot with that grease? And I, I looked at her, and I was like, yeah, why? Like, you know, what's going on? What's up? And she was like, that is so unhealthy. And so she started to tell me that her mother was a nutritionist, and she liked to eat healthy, and all of that kind of stuff. And that was the first time anyone challenged me about preparing fried chicken for them.
2: You're like, so much for the red velvet cake I made for afterwards.
7: Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, everything else was kind of like a
2: wash, you know, for the rest, of the, the rest of the meal. But that date wasn't really what inspired the movie. The impetus for this movie, you've said in interviews, is your father. Talk about that. My
7: father was a big man. He was, he was not too tall. He was about 5'8", five, 5'8 eight, five, eight um, But as long as I knew him, he was overweight. So I was just always concerned that, you know, something could happen to him. You know, I was, I was afraid he would have a heart attack maybe or a stroke or something. And so, yeah, I would pick my spots and I would challenge him to change his eating habits or just ask him, you know, to think about eating differently, maybe losing some weight. Eventually he became ill, you know, with pancreatic cancer. I really wanted him to to start eating differently, but I saw how hard it was for him to change his eating habits and to give up some of the foods that he was so connected to. And he was eating primarily soul food? I mean, he wasn't only eating soul food. I mean, he also ate a lot of fast food, a lot of processed foods, but I think it was soul food that it was something that he felt strongly about and felt was a part of his heritage and his culture that he did not want to give up.
2: That's interesting. Hearing you say that, food is very personal. I mean, it is what keeps us alive, um, but this food also in particular, it is called soul food for a reason. Where did, where did that name develop, you know? And that has such a, almost a spiritual element to it.
7: From what I understand, the term soul food was coined during the black arts movement, the, the, the civil rights movement, the black power movements, where people were reclaiming southern food as a badge of honor And soul food got its name because many of the people who cooked it prepared the meal from the soul, you know, and it was coming out of a place of love. And it was, you know, it was also during a period of soul music, soul power, people were sort of claiming
2: our identity as a soulful people and the food became a part of that. All right, so we just got our food, and I think we need to point out the contrast. I think I'm the unhealthy soul food, and you're the healthy soul food. What do you have on your plate? I have on my plate blackened shrimp, string beans,
7: and sauteed garlic, and some cornbread. And that's, that's what's on my plate. And I, I, I
2: actually decided to, I tried to
7: choose the healthiest thing on the menu. No,
2: that looks, that looks really good and healthy. Mine looks really good too, but I have mac and cheese, uh, collard greens, and fried catfish. That looks good though. Yeah, I I promise I'll exercise later on
7: I hear you, well, that's the key You
2: gotta work it out
7: Work it out and work it off
2: Byron Hurt, his documentary Soul Food Junkie premiered on PBS and is now available on iTunes You can keep your eyes peeled for screenings at theaters around the country Enrico, by the way, I put him for hazard pay this week since I basically risked my life to get that story
1: Because you ate mac and cheese and catfish that was fried? Exactly, it was dangerous. So remind me again how that's worse than your martinis and sandwiches diet that you usually Look, you leave my soul food out of this. (laughs) All right, that's the dinner party for this week, folks. Thanks to Jackson Musker, the assistant producer of our show. Our intern is Tamika Adams. Peter Clowney
2: is our executive producer. Thanks also to Jeff Peters, Amule and Graham Mitchell, Heather and Josh Joy Kaminsky, and to all of our friends at Public Radio's business show Marketplace. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties.
1: Pond is a psychedelic band from Perth, Australia, This week they unveiled the first single from their upcoming album, Hobo Rocket. Yep. That's a psychedelic band for you. The song is called Giant Tortoise. Bon appétit. Thanks for attending the dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Cheers. What What are you drinking? A martini. That's not an olive in there. It's a cheese stick.